Welcome to Make It Happen. My name is Tom Dalton. Each episode will have an inspiring guest tell their story of overcoming obstacles, never settling, and making it happen. Don't forget to share, subscribe, and review. So grab a coffee. Hope you enjoy the pod. Let's go. Okay, so we are live. Uh, welcome to Making It Happen. My name is Tom Dalton. I'll be your host uh, for this episode. Um, first off, our next guest is, uh, is Brian Penny. And I'm delighted to say, to get him on the podcast, he's an author of a new book, Bonus Time, which we're really going to get to delve into and hear his story. He's also a speaker, so he's doing a lot of speaking at the moment. Uh, he's a PhD candidate, university lecturer, and a life-changing strategist. So we're going to get into the delves of that and hopefully pick Brian's brain and how all that came about in the book. But Brian, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Tom. This is great. Really looking forward to it. Uh, so first, uh, thanks again. I appreciate you being on. Um, so Brian, if people don't know you or have never heard your name, it, I always try and start with the guests to go back. If we're going to start your story, where does that story begin? Right, well, the story begins, to, to start off, I was a, I'll say it before I go into the story, so I was a heroin addict for 15 years, tormented by anxiety, and I've come through that now, and that's, that's where my story, what my story is really about. But my addiction, my 15-year heroin addiction really started from the moment I was born, believe it or not. So I was born with, a, with a, a condition known as intestinal malrotation, and it's literally twisted guts. My guts were twisted, and I wasn't getting any nutrients into my body. So it was a big rigmarole. The, the doctors didn't believe me, ma'am. She thought she was a young, naive mother and said it was only colic. A couple of days, a couple of time went past. And when they finally listened, they started to they said, right, we were weighing. And I'd lost half my birth weight. So I was actually only given a very, very slight chance of survival. And I was rushed straight to the operation theater. And what many people don't know, I only found this out while writing my memoir, that if you were born before 1985 and you were an infant that got an operation, you didn't get a general anesthetic. You, you, they didn't actually, yeah. neurological evidence from the 1940s suggested on pinpricking tests that um, babies don't feel pain, infants don't feel pain like normal, uh, normal people, which is horrifically wrong. We know that now even fetuses can feel pain. So I was just given a muscle relaxant for it to stop me squirming on the theater and I had open surgery like without that. And then for the next uh, year and a half, like basically I was complications from the operation. I literally cried in pain for the fourth year and a half of my life. And since I've gone back to study psychology, I never even thought this was a big deal in my life. I never thought much about it. But since I went back and studied my degree in psychology and I'm doing a PhD in this stuff, what, what I've learned was basically from a basic learning perspective, a behaviorally learned perspective, I grew to associate the whole world with pain because I was just feeling pain for that first few years of my life. So I think that just primed me for a life of anxiety. And although I had a pretty loving childhood growing up, there was alcohol issues in the family, there was a lot of, and I was primed to worry, primed to be anxious. And I just, my childhood was really full of restlessness and anxiety. And, and that's really where my addiction came from. So Brian, when you, when you think back to your childhood was, when you mentioned the word anxiety, like what would be your definition of anxiety? Right, and, and this is a problem in, in science and in the world as well. <clears throat> so no one, we don't, if, if 10 people describe themselves to have an anxiety, they will all have different symptoms. So it's, a, it's on a spectrum really. 
my anxiety lived in my body really so it's bodily sensations that's why i'm really convinced it was to do with the, the my early experiences so even today my like i, I don't struggle with anxiety i have a great i, I actually said i have a great relationship with anxiety which is a really strange thing to say but instead of a phobic thing about my heartbeat and my pulse which i'm not 100 comfortable with that's still my little demon so for me my anxiety was a tight chest tight head restlessness and agitation just an uneasiness in my hands me in my twi- tw- a, a slight twitchiness i'd say but also I was consumed by thinking about the future. That's where anxiety really lives. Like even if you're even if you're you're afraid of your pulse, your heartbeat, something weird like that, it's a fear of death, really. It comes out to fear in some form. So for me, it was grounded in fear of me dying, fear of my family dying, and a fear of an unknown future. And Brian, just to highlight your childhood there, when you were growing up and you got that procedure, and probably a little bit later when you were coming, maybe into later on in your growing up in your childhood how was it dealing with that and the struggles you had with your stomach and your body and so sorry how did how, how do i deal with it now or well how, how did you deal with it growing up like what was your childhood oh. like when you had that i didn't I, it's really funny Tom. that's a great question because i actually did this this is really interesting because it my whole story when we go into my addiction story right it was all about self-deception I didn't, I had no awareness and I refused to believe what was actually going on. So my relationship with that uneasiness was a relationship of unawareness. I kind of thought that's how everyone sort of felt. And it was, it's only in retrospect that I look back, like I I have memories, huge memories of my childhood of looking out the window, waiting for my mum for years, looking at me out of my bedroom window, waiting for my mum and dad to come back from the pub. I started new to be drink driving, and I was just ter- terrified that they were going to die and leave, leave me alone. That was the real thing. Around seven to eight years of age, I was, and um, I just thought that that was normal. I didn't know any other way, and I just and a lot of my friends' parents were alcoholics. I probably came from a disadvantaged area. I nearly felt lucky. That's really strange. I actually felt lucky. My parents were together. All of my friends, none of my parents were together. They'd split up and it was addiction issues and alcohol issues as well. So it was really a relationship of unawareness, no relationship. That's that's what I would say. And on a, on a, and saying that as well, I kind of did know because I never told my parents or I never told anyone about it because I didn't want to upset anyone else. So I always thought I was strong enough. Now I'll deal with this. I'm strong enough to deal with this myself when I really wasn't strong enough. And Brian, when you talk about anxiety there and you saying you didn't want to share it, when you're dealing with any of your clients now or you're doing any talks, is that one of the things you've noticed? People hold it in and they don't want to share maybe their problem or what they're thinking. Yeah, definitely. Especially lads, especially blokes. I, I find it's, it's really interesting. And I, I've noticed it specifically around the book. They don't, not only do they not come looking for help, they won't even comment on our, our, um, our talk, or enter the dialogue of talking about mental health. It's funny, I'm sort of very comfortable talking about my feelings and my mental health because I've come through that battle. But I find blokes tend not to do that. Men tend not to go there. And it's the ego story. It's really that ego story where we're in the stigma. We're not supposed to be able to handle things. And it's the ego sort of, the male ego sort of was what drove me towards addiction, I suppose. But to answer specifically your question, I think I think it could relate back to an unawareness of what it actually is, like an unawareness of the language, like anxiety. What people say that what is anxiety? You could ask some psychologists what anxiety is on different days, and they might give you a different description because we don't really know what it is. It's that thing. It's on a spectrum. There's different symptoms that all fit in. So it's known what you have. It's great to it's great to know that you have something so you can label it. 
But then when you label it, it can also become a self-fulfilling prophecy and you start living that out. I am anxiety becomes your story as well. Having a story of anxiety was a huge problem in my life as well. So it's a really, it's a really difficult one. And I think it's getting people more, again, back specifically to your question again, I think it's more getting people to sit with themselves, to introspect, to have a look inward. That's why meditation is a great tool. And even if you're not pushing them towards looking at it specifically, through sort of more better self-awareness, they'll just develop that awareness themselves. And I think that's crucial. Yeah, I think self-awareness is a big thing. And I think self-talk sometimes, the way we talk to ourselves, is so important. Um, And Brian... Just you, you obviously mentioned addiction, and I might be a bit naive here now when it comes to it. But how, I suppose, what was your introduction to drugs, or how did that co- addiction come into your life? Yeah, so so for me, I, I never thought I was going to go down the road of addiction. Even though I came from an addiction area and I was surrounded by addiction, I thought I was too good to be an addict. I was pretty good at football. I, I was aspiring to be a professional footballer. Probably wasn't good enough. I don't think I was, but I was good. I was good. Um, and I was academic, so I, I was good in school. Like I was doing well, so I, I had huge aspirations. I, I had huge self belief, and it's it carried me forward in recovery as well. And um, I remember my friends start smoking cigarettes, and I thought I thought wow, well, idiots smoking cigarettes, puffing that stuff into your lungs, brain dead. But I got an injury for a couple of months, and I remember on the football on the roof of the football dressing rooms of all places. One of my friends, Alan, said, "Oh, the head buzz you got off that cigarette it was a big uh, Samson uh, roll up." And I said, a head buzz. And I, I must have been getting curious about drugs and highs at that stage, at that age I was at. And I remember I said, no, give us a little pull for the head buzz. And what I, age I was that, Brian, if you don't mind? 14, sorry, I was 14. Okay. Yeah, so I took a puff of that cigarette and I remember falling in love with that head buzz. Whatever it done, I must have even just had a few seconds relieving a bit of restlessness that was in me or something, get me something different. And within me, I knew my brother was smoking hash at the time and within a few weeks of that, I was smoking hash Within a year, I was taking acid, I was taking tablets, I was messing around with all kinds of drugs. And by the time I was seven, 16, 17, I was messing around with opiates and I was taking heroin at 17. Wow. And Brian, Escalate. you talk about, like, there's a lot there in what you're at to describe and, and you were heavily involved in sport. When you went down the drugs path, if you, if you call it that, how did that affect your daily living, sport, relationships with people? Massively, massively and slowly. So it was insidious, very, very insidious. I talk about it in the book where I had a secret and um, that no one else knew about that you could do heroin and uh, not be a real addict if you do what I do. Like, you know, that way I, was, I used to tell everyone to try heroin once. You won't be like them. Really bizarre. And I was setting myself up for, setting myself up to be able to do it and feel okay with that. So I, I, the injury was a bad injury. It was, um, it was actually a, um, an injury like, um, what's the word for it? It was like a muscular injury to do with the way I walked, to do with my gait. And I couldn't actually, um, I, I remember I was given exercise. I went to physio, really expensive physio, and he gave me exercise to fix it. And I remember I used to blame the physio for my addiction because he didn't fit, fit, fix me knee. But it was funny because addiction was just creeping in. So I wasn't doing the exercises. And insidiously and very slowly, addiction was taking hold. I wasn't going to football as much. I was blaming the physio for my lack of being able to get to the football. And even though I tipped me toe, I, I kept my toes in football for years after that, I was on and off injured, never got fit again. I was never fit again after that. I was never fit, really properly fit after 14, 15. And I was very fit before that. And then... Even though I was dabbling in addiction, it was weekend addiction and until I was 17. So even when I'd done my leaving cert, I'd messed around with heroin. I was doing drugs a lot on weekends. I was still getting good results. I was still putting effort in. I was still, like, what defined my addiction was a functional addict. Like, I worked for years even at that as well. So I was always 
keeping a facade up that I wasn't a real addict and I wasn't like the other people. So that kept me working hard as well. So it was a funny kind of a relationship, which made it very insidious because I didn't see it coming. That was, that was the funny thing. It was a really strange relationship. And Brian, when, when you finished the leave insert, what was next then on your journey or where are we at then? Yeah, I went to art college. I went to Ballyferma Art College and um, that was an interesting experience because I, I lived in a place called Ladieswell in Blanchardstown and it was a, we lived in a little bubble. It was like there was fields all around. It was a great little place for growing up. And great times, like great memories as well. But we're living in a little bubble. And that was the first time. I went to school actually on the Navan Road in St. Declan's near my nannies. So I did travel down there and back again. So there were me two little bubbles maybe, but I was much more comfortable in Ladieswell. But when I went to Ballyferma Art College, I remember feeling everyone was just a lot of mature students and it was just different and I didn't feel comfortable in that environment. And I left after a couple of months saying that I'll do a portfolio course because I was quite good at art, but it was never really going to happen. And I was 17 at that stage and I think that was the start of the end, of the long end. But that was the start of the long end where I, I, I wasn't going to go to college anymore. I started working to get jobs. And funnily enough, from that experience, I actually got the job I was in for 17 years from that. And I skipped college because I became a graphic, re, uh, graphic artist for, for many years, re, reproducing graphics, more technical side of it. But um, it was funny. In my four, one of my first days in that job, I was telling somebody about my secret. It was just smoke beard and I was showing them the heroin I had. And I lasted 17 years in that job, which is bloody... It's crazy when you think about that. Like even the pictures, there's some pictures of me and I look a state, like I look like death warmed up and I was still working at that time, which is really bizarre as well. It's a, it's a big feature of my story, this functional addict. But um, yeah, that's, that's the way that was, that went down. So Brian, during that time you, you got working and you were telling yourself a story that it's okay, I've got a job, I'm controlling <clears throat> my life and I dabble in this substance at the weekend or bits and bobs. Was, was it right in saying that's the story you were telling? 100%. So storytelling, self-lawyers, self-deception, and storytelling is actually the essence of my book. I think there's a line that captures the essence of my book. I was a black belt in self-deception, and I could cross any boundary, take any action by telling myself a lie and believing it. And it was absolutely crazy. One story that's a huge feature of my life in addiction was I cannot cope with anxiety. I need heroin to survive. That was a huge story. The other story was, I'm not a real addict, I'm not like them, and um, yeah, I'm different, I'm different. That, that, that was the story. So they were two little stories, even though for 12 of them years, I was going to a methadone clinic. For 12 years, I was a registered addict, going to a methadone clinic, giving urines every week to show that I hadn't got drugs in my system, when I had got drugs in my system nearly every single week. And I still didn't believe I was a real addict because I went on holidays. I had a car. I used to go into my methadone doctor and talk to him about his skin holidays and think I had everyone filled. I had nobody filled. It was crazy. It was crazy. And Brian, just before we get on to the book, what was, um, did you have a tipping point? Was there a lowest point where you're like, listen, this, this story can't go on. I need to get clean. Or what was that journey? I start the book off with it, that story. So it's it's actually maybe sitting around now for context, and it's or maybe kitchen now for context. It was in the sitting room beside me, and basically I I I I've spoken. I was a functional addict, but I stopped functioning. I, a lot of people say I stopped functioning five years before I lost my job, which pretty much to an extent was a slow slow climb. But um, I stopped functioning. I lost my job. I lost my health. I lost my mind. I lost every important relationship in my life. So everything went to pot. I couldn't protect my story anymore because I had no money coming in. I had no, no one trusted me. I had no friends. I lost everything. 
And that was the first time I decided, right, I'm going to have to seek another way. So I, I says, I'm going to seek professional help, go to a detox center. I wasn't willing to give up all drugs because my story was still, I can't cope without drugs. I need drugs. But I was going to get do a reboot, do some drugs, give up some drugs that were causing the real problems. That, that was me thinking at the time, which was very muddled because I was on death's door. I really was. But I tried to get into a detox facility. They wouldn't let me because I was an insurance risk because I had too many drugs in my system, shockingly enough. He said, I'd, I'm, I'm at risk of having a seizure. So special addict, special me, that's different than everyone else thought, as if I'll have a seizure. So I've done a detox at home on my own. Two days in, not only the most painful night of my life, the most important night of my life. And I woke up, and I'm sitting around the floor, blood everywhere. And I, uh, this, this is a long story, so I'll actually I'll, I'll do the quick version of it. But I literally woke up on my floor, blood everywhere. I'd driven the teeth through my tongue from the convulsions of the seizure. And it was the most painful night of my life. I ended up in hospital emotionally, mentally, and physically broken. And the experience that I start the book off with is when I, I remember being on a trolley in the hospital on my own, and I, I remember looking at the wall, and it was like this fire extinguisher on the wall just pulled me into the moment. And I was just staring at this bloody fire extinguisher. And it was a red fire extinguisher, but it didn't make sense to me that night. I, I knew the word red, and I knew the word fire extinguisher. But I was just looking at it saying, what, what is it? It's not, and nothing but words didn't go together anymore. And I remember just thinking, oh my God, your brain, you're about to, you're about to damage in your brain. You're just screwed, game over, man. And I was waiting for that panic, that anxiety, that dread to come over me. But it didn't come. I remember it was just like this surrender. It was just like, I give up. I can't do this anymore. I'm done. I'm done. I'm absolutely done. And I think that was the crack in the ego, my self-identity, the story that I told myself. I dropped the story. And that was the moment when everything changed for me. That's why I believe it's my defining moment. Wow, it's powerful stuff, Brian. And ju just to go back, Brian, that takes a lot of self-discipline. For you to get rejected to do your detox and to say, do you know what, I'm going to do this at home. That, there must have been a burning desire, like fire somewhere for you to take that on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And Tom, that, that's a great point. I've never heard, I've never, I've never thought about it myself that way. I've touched on this before. And I often say when I'm doing my talks um, in companies or whatever, and I'd say something in me being knew I had to do it now. But there was, there was something screaming at me. I, I often say, I think I, 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 my gut wasn't talking to me. My instincts were, I, I quieted them for years and I couldn't hear them. But I think something was screaming at me there, here, pal, you need to stay alive. You need to do this now. Because I don't know why I'd done that. It was just something telling me I needed to do this now. I felt like if I didn't do it now, I was gone. Because my family were ready to bury me. Like, they really were. And that's, that's, it wasn't so much discipline. It was like blind belief of something inside me just telling me to do it. I, I don't know, I don't know what it was. It was, it was something really driving me, yeah. And Brian, after the trauma of being in hospital there, and how difficult was that next part? The next month was the most difficult month of my life. So I still had another four weeks to get benzo Benzodiazepines was the drug that was causing the seizure specifically. So I had to wait for them to come out of my system before I could get into an actual detox facility to get off heroin. So strangely, funnily enough, like I was taking a lot of benzodiazepine and drinking a lot of alcohol. I was taking everything. So I came off everything except opiates. That four weeks withdrawal coming off benzos and alcohol and other drugs was much more difficult than coming off opiates it was in a different kind of a way. Now I ended up back in hospital. I had another seizure. And I was literally just broken. I was literally on my sitting room um, sofa, 
for a month. Literally, I didn't move, and I was literally, I couldn't even hold the phone. I had to make a phone call at one time. I couldn't push the digits of the phone. I had no strength. I had nothing left of me. And because I was fierce anxiety, because I was the opposite of withdrawal, is the opposite of the balls that you actually got. So I was dealing with to get away from anxiety. So the withdrawal was like a double dose with fangs. Like it was, it was horrific. So that was the worst month of my life. But something happened when I got into the detox facility then. A bit of belief came into me again. I said, geez, I might have a life here again. There was a little bit of an energy inside of me. And then the next five weeks were really tough as well, coming off heroin. But the, the, I said the fire extinguisher moment was, was, the, the, was the first chink in the armor. There was a few stages. But when I got off all the drugs, I was a day or two cleaned. It was like this shift in me being was just happened. And this is what really defined the rest of my life since then. So I, I, what I'll talk about is I woke up. I think it was the, I, I can never remember specifically. I think it was my first day clean and my second day clean. <clears throat> I think it was the first day clean, to be honest. And I remember walking out on, into the farm. The detox facility was on a farm. And I remember just the whole world just came alive. It was already happening. It wasn't an instantaneous thing. But that morning, it was like it was extra, extra verve in it or something like that. And I remember it was an October, dew-soaked morning. And I remember the grass was just gleaming. It was just alive. The, the, the dew drops were like diamonds twinkling. The sun, I hadn't seen a sunrise in 15 years. Like I hadn't even looked. And it was just like the whole world was alive. What I like to describe is before that, I felt like everything was dead and hollow. But now the whole world was just like oozing into me, being pervading every part of my body. It was like the most incredible experience in the world. I call it a perspective shift. And what I've come to realize, I, I was introduced to Eastern philosophy, meditation there. And what, I remember doing a meditation and they were saying, let the thoughts come in and let them go. And I remember thinking, wow, there's no thoughts. My mind is really, really quiet. So I think through the suffering of whatever happened to me, letting go of the story, through the fire extinguisher incident, Something in me being just says, right, you need to quiet down, man. You're killing yourself. And something happened. There was a shift in consciousness. My mind went quiet. And when my mind went quiet, anxiety left me. That's the only way I can describe it. And I have since, uh, I wanted it. That's why I was mad into Eastern psychology. I, I got straight out. After I got out, I wanted to do a psychology degree. I'd done a psychology degree. My PhD is in this stuff. And I wanted to know why, with the nature of the psyche, the human psyche, why I don't suffer anymore, how I can share with others. And what I'm coming towards is I'm studying a research around the relationship between language and emotion, self-talk and emotion. And what, what basically happens is the research shows, very robust research, that emotions and feelings travel through language. So if you, it's like classical conditioning. Like if you say um, a snake, the word snake, and an actual snake, you're afraid of an actual snake if it bites you. But then if you hear that it's the word snake is the same as an actual snake, if someone shouts to you, snake, you're going to get a fright. The emotions travel through just the language. So if you have an internal narrative that's really negative, you're going to feel anxious, you're going to feel horrible. So I think this is why our stories are so important. And this is what's really brought me on the journey. I do a lot of stuff around self-talk and tools, tactics and all of this. But the self-talk piece around well-being, I think is really, really critical. And it was, it was fundamental in my life. And I think that's why meditation is so important as well, because... Basically, that's a way of quieting the voices or changing your relationship with the voices is probably another way of saying it. Yeah, you're, you're talking about some great tools there, which, which I think anyone can adapt into your life. Brilliant. Was there anyone, Brian, when you were going through your detox and like, was there a shining light or was there a family member or someone that inspired you to go, Do you know what, I can kickstart my college again. I want to study psychology or, or what was your always just you wanted to have a drive for education? Yeah, it's funny, right? So, so my family have been incredible, like incredible. I can't help them enough or thank them enough. 
but they weren't really, they, they were disturbed by, my, my, my new sense of self came with a few bloody quirks as well. Like I was an addict for 15 years. So this new Brian who had the shift in perspective telling them how to live their lives after a couple of weeks of treatment, like crazy stuff, telling them to eat, like some funny stuff in there as well. Like I thought it was a sage, I was telling them to eat strawberries. They tasted strawberries before, as I, as I found out. Like, so there was some crazy stuff in there. So my family were very worried about me. What I would say my, where my inspiration came from was from the books. So I read a lot of books. I got deep into a guy called Anthony DeMello and um, Eckhart Tolle. I love Eckhart Tolle's work. And it was all around self-awareness, self-observation. And I got deep into that kind of meditative stuff. So I would say uh, Marcus Aurelius as well, Stoicism as well. So a lot of this stuff, the inspiration came from people that were, have passed away. But Eckhart Tolle and Marcus are, are, and um, um, Anthony DeMello specifically became the beacons of hope and a way of, of navigating the world. And really, Anthony DeMello has some great stuff. He's a great story about, uh, oh, it's, a, it's a long story, I won't go into it, but he's some great parables about different things about coming alive, waking up to, to like, he, he says we all have this potential, but we're all so stressed out and so tormented by our minds that we don't realize this potential. That if you can quieten your mind and get into the moment and be the observer of yourself rather than being this thinker who's con who you're consumed by, anything is possible and i really i really um i've really tried to to align myself towards our principles brilliant it looks like i'm gonna have some reading to do now with some, some new books <laughs> um and and brian just before we get into the book i know i've said that twice now but did you find a positive addiction was it exercise was it reading the books what was your like you found that you go was it food what, what was your next drive you you read me mind. I actually meant to talk about that, right? So, I personally believe, and this it's not going. Addiction is very complicated, and and one fix isn't going to work for everybody. But I think a great thing that some people should uh, something a direction we should go down in addiction is is it is a, an idea called transforming desires. Because if you come out of addiction, you've had this huge desire that's carried your life, so you need to replace it with something else. Now, obviously, there's a lot of other dangerous addictions, and that's why the addiction circles are very concerned about people swapping addictions. But if you transform them desires into positive addictions, mine was learning, curiosity, reading books, meditation. But it was also exercise, getting fit, getting healthy, eating the right foods, learning about how to live, social intelligence, emotional intelligence, connecting with people. But it all came from a deep curiosity about life. So I sort of found my passion in a way. And I would say to people, look for your passion. Really look, look deeply for your passion. Read far and wide, try out lots of things and look for that passion. Because if that lights you up, wow, it's a game changer. Brilliant. And Brian, I suppose if we're moving on in your story, um, am I right in saying you started doing talks, you got approached to do some lectures, you got into yeah. that space, you qualified through college, and then the book came around. Could you just highlight that a little bit? Yeah, and I, I could tell this all in one narrative, but I think it's, it's a really important part of my story. So I, I went to college, and um, I got my degree in psychology, and there was a few little uh, bumps along the way. Like I really... Um, I, I had a little mini relapse taking Solpidin two years clean because I got so obsessed about the, the, the obsessed about doing really well in college and getting stressed about certain things and it happened in unawareness and I says I lost this light beautiful gift I was given and I didn't even see it coming so on that day I was going to leave college I didn't I got great advice off someone a guy called Stephen Taylor and um, I doubled down on my mental health that came forced for everything my mental health came forced and I developed a program to navigate my own life so a lot of stuff on my website and about my talks and everything I do was around this program that I developed to navigate my own life and that I share with other people so um, so that always comes forced and what happened was ever since I doubled down on my mental and emotional health 
I, things, even better things came into my life because I was focusing on the right things first. So I got um, I got a scholarship for Trinity College for my master's and for my PhD. It might it started to be amalgamated in the end. And in my, one of my first talks in there, I had to do like a little um, a little talk to all the, the visiting lecturers and stuff like that. I was only in, in a little room. And one of the professors, Louise McHugh, her name is, asked me, and she, she, I was big into the neuroscience of mindfulness, and she asked me did I want to teach the module, the neuroscience of mindfulness, in UCD. So I was like, hell yeah, this sounds great, like, you know. So I went to that, um, to, to teach on that thing. It was a life-changing experience for me because uh, Niall Breslin, who most people will know as Brezzy, was in the class. And I went in, Niall was expecting this tall, sort of tweed coat, bespectacled um, neuroscience lecturer. I was a bit nervous. He was struggling with his own anxiety at the time because he's back in UCD. He's very open about that. And I stroll in with, a, he said, with tousled hair, as he describes it, and a, sort of a tracksuit top on. I, I, I wasn't wearing a tracksuit top, but that's what he says. That's, that's what he remembers. We'll go with that. And I'd, I'd, plat, I'd, I'd salitate, salitate my computer because I'd no money. I was doing deliveries to fund my education for a few years before that. And he lo- I opened up with me. I was vulnerable. I was very open about my story. And he loved my story. And he was a couple of months later. We, we knew we were going to get in touch with each other from chatting that day. He says, man, let's write a book together. So we're going to be writing a book together. Now, life got in the way. He, 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 um, we're, we're probably going to go back to that at some stage. But life got in the way. Certain other obstacles came in the way. Um, we went down different directions. The band went great for him. And then I had other directions to go in as well. So we might get back to that at some stage. But he opened up so many doors for me. It was crazy. And basically, he put me in touch through the, through the approach of going through the, the book process with me and him. Because we went far on the book process. We were nearly signed on the dotted line. So I got in touch with Gil. And um, book, book publishers through that process. And they wanted me to write me memoir. And that just opened up a whole new world for me. And But before I get into that as well, actually, just sort of leans, segues into that as well. So I started doing public speaking after that as well, after the UCD team and schools and stuff like that. And I remember doing one or two talks and I, I, I was getting through to some kids in the schools, um, but some kids I wasn't getting through to. And I said, how could I, how would I get through to all of these kids? Like, what, what, what would I need? And I thought to myself, if I was talking about life advice from celebrities, CEOs, top business people and stuff like that, sharing their principles as well all these kids had listened like the kids with anxiety and addiction issues in their own lives and their families they were clued in they wanted to hear what a heroin former heroin addict had to say but i knew all of these other kids they all have challenges in their lives so how would i share my message with them so i was going to try to get them to engage if i was to share messages from other people so something came into my head i was reading a book called tribe of mentors by uh, tim ferris crazy here behind me oh, it's brilliant so I remember reading that book and I was saying, right, what would this look like? What would it, what would it look like if it were easy for me? And I said, I need a tribe of mentors on my own. So I sent an email to many of the most influential people in Ireland, top CEOs, and the amount of them that could got back to me has been incredible. I've uh, I, That launched the speaking career I had today. Carolyn Lennon from Air brought me in. Anne Herity, I got an interview with Anne Herity. Uh, Bernard Bourne from AIB brought me in for a talk in front of, 100 top execs and recorded for the whole 10,000 of AIB that launched my whole speaking career. Nick Slane, a great mentor of mine, like incredible people came into my life responding to that email. And I was like, we're going to talk about life lessons. Like I was just ruthlessly honest and out there in that email. And it just worked in my favor. Like I've even interviewed Amy Huberman, Dara O'Brien, just from this region out. The connections I've made have been incredible. But one of the people I reached out to was John Boyle from Boyle Sports. It was my second interview. And based on my first interview, I only thought I was going to get five minutes. So I went and met John Boyle up in Dundalk. He's like a billion. He's actually a billionaire, like I think, at this stage. I didn't know what to expect. I think I was going to get five minutes. 
John comes out, brings me in his big Jeep. He has a, he actually drives a Rolls Royce. He hadn't got it at the time. I've seen his Rolls Royce, seen the right. gold Rolls Royce, crazy. But John brought me on the drive and he says, what's your birthday, Brian? And I says, my birthday is the 6th of April. And he says, no, what's your real birthday? And he instinctively knew what he was talking about. And I says, the, the 8th of October. He says, mine's the 27th of September, 23rd of September. He was in recovery 20 or 37 years or something like that. He based his whole empire on the 12-step program. And we've become close friends. He's become a mentor of mine. And after I left on that front first meeting, John turned around to me and says, do you know what, Brian? Do you know why you're sitting here? He says, because you don't give a crap. You're living on bonus time. And that's the name of my memoir. <laughs> great story, James. It's a, it's a nice story, isn't it? I love it. I love it, yeah. I love uh, the titles, great. I'm dying to get stuck into the book now myself. So, Brian, just on that, how have you found public speaking? Have you found a challenge in or is it just, let's go, let's do this, or...? No, I, find, I found it very challenging at first. And the closest I ever came to a panic attack happened on one of my first uh, big public talks. So I was doing, I'd done a couple of school talks. They went fine. I was nervous. And I still get a little bit nervous. You should be getting nervous. I think the day I don't get nervous doing a public speaking is the day I have a, I have a problem. So, but it's, it's good anxiety. It's like evolutionary anxiety. Like, you know, and I've changed my relationship with it. Before I really completely changed my relationship with it, it was one of my self-observations, my biggest mindfulness tool. I'm always observing myself my thoughts, feelings, and bodily sensations, especially my bodily sensations, because that's where anxiety lives for me. So I practiced that a lot. And then when we first big talks in NCI, it's in the book. I really went to the depths of the, the, de- the details of this experience in the book. And I was going in to do the talk. And it was just in this auditorium. And I never done one in an auditorium with people all sh- sloped up to the, to the roof and all. I said, wow, this is a bit intimidating. And then all the psychology lecturers came in. And then I, my mouth started going dry and I forgot my water. And it's just, I could feel this anxiety coming over me. And before I knew it, my friend, Michelle, who was my supervisor and undergrad, was introducing me. And I was like, oh my God, I'm not ready for this. And I start, I start, um, I start to speak and my mouth was dry. The words weren't coming out right. And I was like, oh my God, I think I'm going to have a panic attack. And I remember talking about stories. I, remember, I think what got into my head was, oh my God, Mr. Mindfulness is going to have a panic attack on stage. <laughs> and I think, I think it was the context of all of a sudden me talking about mindfulness and having to live up to this sort of story, this new story. Uh, uh, that's what was making me anxious, fear about the future of a potential panic attack. As I said, that's where anxiety lives. But through my practice of self-observation, it was like all of a sudden, before the pa- whatever was going to happen to me, it was like I just had to step back from myself and I observed myself. And I was chatting to a psychologist friend of mine because it was like an extra narrator came into the room and says, right, Brian, this is what you have to do. Your mouth is dry. You need to get water. You're feeling anxious. The people are all looking at you. Name it, own it, and run with this. But it was like a different narrator. But what that psychologist friend of mine said was, like, it wasn't like a tinker. It was like present moment thinking. You need what? You're thirsty. You need water. You need to own the story. This is happening right now. It was all present moment stuff. So I actually just says, right, here's what's happening, people. I don't know the exact words I used. It says, I was about to have a panic attack right there. I felt really anxious. And I was about to have a panic attack. I'm going to talk about this in terms of my talk. And I was really, really vulnerable. I don't know where it came from on the stage. And although it wasn't streamlined, it wasn't a slick talk, and I wouldn't be the slickest in the best. And I don't try to be the slickest anyway. I try to speak from the heart, and I try to go with the flow in the talks. And um, even though it wasn't definitely one of my weaker talks by far in terms of style and content, one of my forced talks, some of the people have described that talk back to Michelle saying it was one of the most powerful experiences they had because I was able to practice that in action, in the moment. I showed me vulnerability in the moment. I nearly had a panic attack and then I could talk about it and how I came through that experience. 
and a lot of people got, got a lot from that talk and it's something I always keep in me locker. I remember ever since that day, I always say, right, if I ever get really anxious and I'm doing this huge, big talk, let's say I'm on something huge in the future, I'm going to use that in me locker to do that in vivo and explain the experience in vivo. And I think that's really helped me because now I have a tool if I get anxious that I want to use, which is really, it's really ironic in a way as well, you know? So it was, that's, that was my introduction to speaking. Brilliant. And uh, Brian, you've mentioned there about finding your passion and looking for your passion. Uh, we kind of asked some of our guests, what does success look like for you? Or what way do you look at success with your own story? Yeah, it's funny. I'll answer this in a few ways usually. And for me, energy for me is the currency of life. If you have high energy, you can do anything. So I think that's, 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 a, that's, a, that's a, a vehicle for success is high energy. So I protect my energy ruthlessly. Like I, I train well, I, I eat well, I meditate, I quiet my mind. I don't let negative thoughts consume me because they are all energy zapping things if you, if you do that. And negative people as well, difficult people, energy vampires, if I like to call them as well, that's important. So success to me is high energy. But what it really comes down to is an inner peace and a purpose. So I'm sort of, I'm sort of pivoting on what what success is to me these days if you asked me a couple of months ago i would say an inner peace and just a, a fulfillment a good a nice joy but i think i think connection comes into that as well you have to be connected with the right people and i think it's more than inner peace so it's not like a passive inner peace it's like a lively inner peace an energetic inner peace that's full of love for want of a better word full of love and connection and and relationships with really good people and i think this has really changed since writing my memoir I, I had a problem there, taking the perspective of others before writing my memoir. And I still, it's something that's true addiction, I think. I was always thinking about me, 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 me. But when writing my memoir, I never felt my family's pain and the torture I put them through. When you read the book, you'll see the torture I put my family through, my mother and my sister, particularly and my brothers, everyone. Like bringing them on, oh, horrific things. And I never felt their pain. But by writing that memoir, I felt their pain. It floored me for a week. I, I had to just sit with the feelings. I was so difficult. But the connection through that has just been, it was a cathartic experience. I feel so much better and closer to them through that experience. And I'm feeling connection like never before. There's a great quote I have in my book, actually, by a guy called Johan Harry. Addiction, sobriety is not the opposite of addiction. Connection is. And I think that's very, very true. But I also think self-awareness is a big piece of that puzzle as well. So to answer your question, I think success for me is having good connections in your life. Being very highly self-aware, having having I'm butchering how I'm saying so I have to put this together at a better time. Having high energy and and an inner peace. So four little nuggets there, I think, is what success is for me. No, that's brilliant. I I'm I love the uh, energy currency for life. I I really like that. Um, that's that's amazing. Um, just one question we ask our guest Brian is um, we kind of talk about like life and what it means. Would you have any regrets? Yeah, yeah, and, and, and it's funny, the, the, the regret thing is a funny one. I think one of the reasons why I am I'm happy in recovery, very happy in recovery, is that I don't naturally have regrets. I don't naturally have resentments, as they call it in, in recovery circles. And re having resentments is one of the biggest problems for people in relapse and addiction. I don't naturally have that. And I think it comes because I'm present moment focused. So I don't delve into the future too much. I don't delve into the past too much. So I'm present moment focused. But there is, there is a sadness that's there because of what I put my family through. 
Um, I don't have any regrets for me last time. Yeah, I wish I had them. Do I wish I had them years back? I couldn't have gotten where I am now without them last year. So I don't wish I had them back because it's sort of paradoxical in a, in a sense. I regret harming my family on the journey. I wish I could have done it on my own. But I don't, I don't dwell on that because if I dwell on that, I wouldn't be able to help them in the now. I, I help my family a lot in the now and I think I bring a lot of joy to their lives now. And I do that by not regretting the past pain that I caused them. And I think that's really, really important. Yeah, it's very honest there. It's great. And Brian, do you, how do you manage it all at the moment? Like you've got the book launch, you're doing talks, you're doing podcasts, you're speaking, you're studying. How do you manage it all? I'd have a lot of tools for that. A lot of tools. I won't go into all of them, obviously, but um, does uh, uh, one of them, I think, um, a life lesson. I'll, I'll talk about that in a few minutes, actually. But the one thing that I have that's had a huge impact on me, like it's a mantra I live my life by. And it's it's a book, actually. It was a book, an end of a book, which I only found out recently. I, I read an article on it. It's called, Will It Make the Boat Go Faster? So there was a, a Great Britain Olympic round team in the 2000 Olympics. For every decision they had to make, they asked themselves, will it make the boat go faster? If it did, they said yes. If it didn't, they said no. So I've developed this metaphorical boat for my own life that's based on my goals, my values, and my purpose. My purpose in life is with a relentless belief that we are what we think. My mission is to show people that change is possible, demonstrating actionable steps through a lived experience. So I'm doing that right now. I do that with my talks. I do that with my skills. I do my skill talks for free. That makes my purpose boat go faster. So I say yes to these things. My goals... It's really funny. I'm doing a lot of talks around this at the minute. So three months ago, my goals were my PhD, my public speaking, and my book. And if I had to make a decision, I'd say, will it make my boat go faster? I said, yes. If it did, I said, yes. If it didn't, I said, no. But since COVID-19 has come in, my goals have sort of changed. My number one goal is my own mental health, my self-care. My second goal is the mental health of those around me. So they're my two primary goals. My business still has to be a goal as well. So maybe the three goals, but my self-care has to come first. So my goals kind of pivoted in the last while. So it's like the rudder of the boat kind of changed. But I still ask myself, will it make my boat go faster? That's simple little technique. And then this is where the values piece comes in as well. So I love being bold. Like being bonus time has given me a sense of laughing at rejection, embracing failure, being bold, dreaming big. So boldness, daring greatly. They're big values of mine. Um, other values would be industry, ambition. I really value these things, but they haven't been serving me either in the last couple of weeks. I'm like, I had to reevaluate my values in, that, in this moment in time. So I'm right, patience, compassion, duty, connection. They, they were elevated at the top of that hill. So it was like me, me values pivoted for a while as well. Now I still love to be bold and I'm still going to get back to them values. But it was nice to see that this metaphor that I used in my life to make decisions has helped me to navigate that. But the great part of this tool as well is it helps me to say no. So that back to the time question, how do I manage all of my time? I'm able to say no. I know what I want. I've deeply reflected on it. And it, 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 it makes it very easy to say no. Brian, there's a... There's a great book, uh, The Monkey Soul is Ferrari. I don't know if you've read it. but uh, That's the book. That's the first book I read in Detox. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, uh, yeah. The biggest thing I've taken, and, and, and I'm not perfect at it. Uh, I'd be a big yes man, especially yeah, in business. It's tough. It is tough, and it's the one thing I'm always trying to improve on is to say no. Uh, <laughs> one thing, just Brian, on that, you mentioned the word rejection, and I actually don't think enough people talk about this. I'm a big believer on... I've had to knock on so many doors to get where I am today and I've gotten knocked back so many times and told no and rejected. What would be your advice to anyone listen that maybe is dealing with rejection? Right, so I, I had a... 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I had a life mantra that I developed from, from, from the email I sent out to all the CEOs and all of these people. I developed a life mantra from, from an, I wrote an article about that, that, um, that experience. And a mantra that I came up with was, be true to your wonderfully weird self. You will attract what you need and repel what you don't. So I didn't get yeses from everyone from that email. But I was true to my wonderfully weird self. I was ridiculously passionate and I let them know. I was an addict for 15 years and I let them know. So there was no games, there was no masks. They knew what they were getting into. So then the people that said no also knew what they were getting into. So they didn't waste my time and they didn't waste their own time. So it's like the perfect storm. Now, don't get me wrong. It still hurts when people say no, it really does. It's just, it's human nature. I think it's, it's based on evolution. Like, thousand years ago or a couple of thousand years ago if you got rejected out of tribe you're dead so that's why rejection board so much it's your old evolutionary system kicking into gear so it still feels crap but it's a habit you can practice rejection it gets easier it's like public speaking i wasn't comfortable with it but i'm comfortable now now i'm comfortable in rejection and i kind of look at the i always try to reframe things as well and just say right um where, where's the positive in this what can i learn from this and and that's a nice way of look of looking at it uh, rejection. Yeah, I, I make a note as you're right there. I like that <laughs> frame for the positives there exactly because I think sometimes we can get stuck in the moment and sometimes you may need to, as you say, take a step back and look at the overall and go, well, what is the positive of this? You know, and I think especially, I think there's a lot of people going through this and I think this COVID-19, I think the mental aspect and the social aspect for people, there's a lot of anxiety and stress going on. So that's why I just wanted to highlight the kind of rejection piece. Yeah. And uh, Brian, I'm conscious on time now, obviously, and I appreciate the time you've given up. Uh, is there anything that stands out to you? Another question I ask most of the guests is, is there any advice you've ever gotten or been given that stands to you? You've given us a lot of mantras there, but that, that really sticks out to you. One of the best pieces of advice you've been given. <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's, there's lots of pieces of advice. And the, the, one, the one that really sticks out to me is, is a guy called uh, Mick Slane, Michael Slane. So he's a, he owns a company called Robus LED Lighting over on Langer Road. And he's one of the people, I didn't reach out to him. I, I reached out to uh, Brian McKern, and he's the CEO of Davy Group. And <clears throat> it's very hard to get a meeting with Brian. I think Brian was interested by my wonderfully weird self story and how I just was ridiculously um, open about it. And I got a meet with him and Mick was a good friend of his. And I asked Brian if he knew any successful friends that he would like to, that I could interview as well. So Brian put me in touch with Mick. Mick put me in touch then with uh, Bernard Bourne from AIB, which launched me speaking career. So all these connections floating around. But Mick has been instrumental in connecting me with people and really helping me and being a mentor for me. And Mick is, is an expert on time management and stuff like that. But it's a mantra. Um, what he, it's another mantra, another, another piece of advice he gave me. And it's literally what gets measured gets managed. If we all think we have this stuff in our heads, and I, I, I still get jump back into it at times. I have to do that. I have to do that. I have to do that. But you're, you don't manage things if you don't write it down. And for anyone listening right now struggling with COVID nineteen, get yourself a routine. But you might think you have a routine, but you don't really have it. You're not managing it properly unless you write it down. You've got to put it on paper. Like it does a great thing in psychology as well. It's plus seven plus or minus two. We can only remember that the max seven plus or minus two means if someone with an expert memory can remember nine things in their working memory at once someone with an average memory can remember seven things at best and some people five so you can only have a couple of items in your mind at any one time yet we overestimate our ability to remember all of these things so you've got to write it down and when you write it down that's when you manage stuff 
And it's the simplest advice is always the best advice. And coming on to that as well is so many other CEOs that I, that I interviewed, especially John Boyle put this across to me. He says, if you keep it simple, move A to B, anything is possible. Keep it simple. And that's it. Write it down. Keep it simple. Back to basics. Eat the right food. Exercise. Sleep at the right time. Stick to the basics. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. That's really good. And Brian, just to finish off, you've given a great few nuggets there. Is there any other than your obviously your own book recommendations that have stood with you over time that any of the listeners you'd say maybe pick up? Yeah, I'll give a, I'll give a couple, um, a couple of different variances for people stuff, right? For managing different people, there's a guy, a book called. How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Now, it should be called How to Be Considerate because it's actually a masterclass on how to deal with people in a very considerate way. The title is a bit weird. It seems a bit manipulative. Brilliant, brilliant book. And uh, Dreaming Big, is it? Oh, what's it by David Schwartz? The Magic of Thinking Big by David Schwartz was a game changer for me. Dream Big, Be Bold. That's, that's a, it's a big one for me. Well, what, what did he say? Your belief is the term that regulates your success in life. That's, that's the secret of life. Like self-belief is the secret. If you believe, then you're going to act towards that stuff and magic can come into your life. It really can. Um, Essentialism by Greg McKeown, another cracking book, a little bit more complex. If you really love delving deep into principles and values and tactics and techniques, Principles by Ray Dalio is another tremendous book. We mentioned Tribe of Mentors by Tim Ferriss, but they David, the big ones for me, yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. And Brian, just uh, where can we find you? Where can people stay connected with you and how can they stay in touch? Yeah, so uh, Tom, I'm on all social media channels. So I'm on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, all in different ones. But the best place to go for me, and if you want to buy the book, is my website. So it's www.brianpenny.com. That's Penny with P-E-N-N-I-E. You can buy the book there. You can lots of social media there. My program is there. Um, I have all the tools and tactics, videos, my blog, everything that I've talked about here, just all that stuff is there. So that's the best place to go. Well, listen, it's been and amazing to hear your story it's been an education of some of the nuggets and i have notes written down here so first i just want to say a big thank you again for your time and i look forward to getting dug into the book thanks so much tom it's an absolute pleasure love it listen i appreciate everything and best of luck going forward with everything brian cheers see you now bye